This is Commerce Shenanigans, episode 768, a conversation with John Rhett Thomas, otherwise known as Gormu. Welcome to the Commerce Shenanigans Podcast. This is Adam Chapman, your host. This is episode 768. It's our uh, conversation with John Rhett Thomas episode, otherwise known as Gormu, on the Marvel Masterworks forums as we talk about a lot of stuff. There's uh, two hours worth of content here. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Um, we talk about uh, pretty extensively about his work on the Marvel Monograph series of uh, art books that uh, Marvel has been putting out over the last couple of years. Uh, we talk about the fact that this is actually the seventh episode that Gormu has uh, been on uh, for the Commerce Shenanigans Podcast. It's always nice to have him uh, join me for a conversation. We really, as I said, we go in depth. Um, We have some questions from uh, the Marvel Masterworks Forum um, where they kind of pepper him with some questions. Go back and forth, make him to make some uh, Sophie's Choice kind of uh, decisions between some of his favorite uh, creators who he would uh, who he would keep over one other. Um, it's some again, it's a great conversation. Uh, there is a nice uh, little uh, surprise at the end. There's an exclusive announcement, uh, some uh, early information on something that comes uh, right in the last few minutes of the show. Um, so you'll want to stick around to the end. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is great. It's always nice having, uh, Gormu on the show. Um, and I'm excited to at some point have him back on for an eighth time to talk about that thing we talk about at the very end. If that doesn't make you entice it to uh, listen to the entire thing, I can't imagine what will. Um, you can always email me at commerceshenanigans at gmail.com. Uh, you can rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, in terms of upcoming episodes, uh, well, first of all, if you want to go back and listen to other episodes with John Red Thomas, otherwise known as Gormu, you can check out uh, episodes uh, 334 from 2016, uh, 426 from November 2016, uh, 448 from February 2017, um, episode 532 from December 8th, 2017. And then from 2018, we did two episodes a week apart, um, which were episodes 626 and 628. That's November 15th and 16th, actually, is when I actually put them out. Um, So not only did we record them pretty close together, but uh, we actually, I think we ended up just doing everything really quickly. Uh, That that was right around when Stanley passed away, sadly. Um, And we had just talked about uh, his work on a book about Stanley, uh, called the Stanley story and working on, on it with Stanley. So he came back for 628, which we recorded like three days later or, um, just after Stan had passed it to kind of talk about it. So, um, you should go back and listen to those conversations again. It's always fun having Gormu on the show. And, uh, yeah, in terms of upcoming episodes, I want to quickly tease is that our next non-reviews episode, so I guess episode 670. Oh, sorry, 770. 770. I've had too many episodes. Uh, 770 will be, uh, hopefully, a conversation with Mark Wade uh, talking about uh, his work on the on the history of the Marvel Universe. And then uh, the next one after that, which I guess would be, what, 772? Um, it sh- ostensibly should be a conversation with Andy Runton, the creator of the Owly uh, graphic book series. Uh, so I'm very excited about both of those episodes and their upcoming and exciting new things that you can check out uh, soon. So thanks for listening to this episode, and let's just jump Jump right in to the two-hour conversation with Gormu as we go all through a uh, uh, gamut of topics: Marvel monographs, uh, secret projects, uh, masterworks. You get you, you know, you name it. We probably talked about it, and uh, here it is coming at you. Enjoy.
Gormu, welcome back to the show. I guess I could say John, but I think that Gormu feels right. That's fine with me. You can call me Gormu, you can call me Rhett, you can call me John, you can call me John Rhett. Just don't call me late for dinner, <laughs> as they say. So. so how are you doing? I mean, it's been a long time since we've had you on the show. I actually have to say it was really nice to hear from you because um, often I you know, send emails out to people to get them on the show. And it was nice to get yours because it felt like you were kind of saying, hey, let's do a podcast. I'm like, well, that's nice. Well, you know, there's nothing else to do. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, I feel the like it just took the wind planet. out of my sails. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. Actually, there's a lot to talk about, and I'm looking. I've been looking forward to this. It's just that the world is at a total standstill. You know, and it's like. Um, but it's funny because we had set this up for last Friday, and when we set that time, I was like, "Oh, that'll be easy." But then things come up, and we had to reschedule to tonight, which is Monday night. Um, because even in the apocalypse, um, things aren't going as planned, you know, and so <laughs> you have to, all the best laid plans must be rescheduled. But, yep. um, so anyway, I'm just glad we're talking and it, it's a little bit of normalcy. I think this is our fourth converse, conversation. That sounds right. I'll podcast. have to double, double check the archives, but I think that's right. And it's interesting because the last time we did it, it was like two episodes right in a row because, I mean, sadly, it was when Stan Lee had passed away. So we actually had like a lot to talk yes. about. And it's hard to believe it's been that long. Yes. Yes, it is. I I was just thinking about Stan the other day. You know, as this uh, virus, you know, travels the world, it's we're we're deeply concerned about our elderly right now, especially. Um, and I just, yeah, I, w- I would have been fearful for Stan for sure for something like this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fearful for my parents and I, uh, my sister and I have sort of worked together to get uh, a quarantine here for them and set up and so far so good on that. Um, everybody's, uh, you know, none of us have had anything, um, you know, any, any sickness. And so, um, you know, we want to keep it that way. So we're keeping a very low profile, doing the bare minimum. Um, and uh, keeping out of harm's way, keeping them out of harm's way for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, if it was just me, I, I don't know. <laughs> I might take advantage of like the open highways and do a little do a little visiting of people if they were open to it. But uh, since since you know it's looking after my folks now, um, you know you're sort of called upon to be a lot more responsible. So that's what uh, that's what I'm up to. Absolutely. No, I just double check because I'm a nerd like that. This is actually your seventh appearance. What? Yeah. Seven? I know. Wow. How lucky are we? <laughs> How lucky are we in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic 20, 2020 to be having our seventh podcast? That's incredible. All I, right. I was, I'm, I'm like, I knew we talked a bunch. I was like, whoa, that's a lot. It was episode 334, 426. Uh, 448, and there was a big drought to episode 532, and then 626 and 628. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, I mean, for, for people who like listening to you talk, there's a lot of opportunities for them to go back and listen. That's right. So, uh, I guess, I guess, uh, one thing we can talk about is, um, is my website, which, uh, you know, it's the 20th anniversary wow. of MarvelMasterworks.com. Yeah. I started it in the year 2000, like the tail end. Like it was, it was that, I forget the exact day that I launched. It actually might've been 2001, but I had started the groundwork in 2000 because, um, 
that's the year that uh, that Tom Tom Brevert went out and when they solicited the uh, the Fantastic Four volume would, mm. would turn out to be volume six, um, and he 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 solicited it when he, when it was solicited. He said, "Y'all have to go out and buy this because if you don't." You know, we we may never do another one if the sales are bad. You better go out and buy it. So I was like, okay, I'll go out. I actually bought two of that. <laughs> and um, and I decided, you know, I need to do something a little more. You know, there was no real website online at the time talking about Masterworks. There was one website that had a, a breakdown of the volumes, but I don't think it was complete um, a lot of long-time Masterworks fans know exactly the website I'm talking about. Um, and I don't even know who ran it. Um, but uh, but that was the only resource online. And so I had to, you know, take information from my own book collection, from, from uh, I didn't know anybody else that was collecting Masterworks. Uh, so I took info from my own book collection and from that website and from other places on the internet like eBay um, I got a lot of information from eBay auctions, <laughs> and uh, and just started building a website. And then I launched it. I forget when I launched it, but it was you know 2000, 2001. And then 20 years later, I'm talking to you on the seventh for the seventh time <laughs> on the Comic Shenanigans podcast. That's crazy. So how about that? Yeah, I, yeah. I can't remember when I came to the website. I mean, I. I was, uh, and I've, I've admitted this before. I've never really been into the Masterworks. They were always at a, for, especially because I'm a Canadian. Um, our price point ended up being so much higher because of conversion costs, etc. So it always seemed so difficult to jump in. But I just loved the community, and I, for a while, I was just a lurker, like a lot of people start out. And I just liked uh, how people would talk about these collected editions because I love that stuff. I loved. You know, thinking about what would be collected now, not to the amazing degree that some people with their mapping and figuring things out and, you know, really getting granular. But I was just always curious about that type of stuff. And it felt like I didn't really know anyone in my real life who cared about that stuff at all. And then suddenly there was this amazing community of people who are dedicated to collected editions, obviously Masterworks first, but, you know, obviously it blossomed into a lot of other things, especially as, you know, the essentials died out. But then you have the Epic Collections coming in. That became a huge community in right. of itself. So it's it's been really nice to kind of have that kind of core community to go back to and people who you love, not just comics, but collected editions. It's a niche of a niche. That's right. It's funny. Uh, yeah, my, my Marvel Masterworks site morphed into collectededitions.com. So, <laughs> um, and the, even though right now it's it's still very Marvel-centric, um, you know, the, the ambition is to is to go it out to include, you know, all collections. But it's funny, um, going back again 20 years, I remember um, when Essentials were coming out, you know, and the Masterworks were sort of uh, coming out at, at a trickle uh, back when there was the Comic Craft uh, trade dress oh, yeah. um, in the 2000-2001. And uh, I remember Tom Breaver was asked, because he was the point man for all this, he was like, he was the one with the institutional knowledge of the classic comics, because at the time Marvel, you know, uh, Joe Quesada and uh, Jimmy Palmiotti had come on. Um, they had sort of transformed Marvel Knights and were on the way to uh, transforming, you know, Marvel into, you know, sort of reflecting sort of a very progressive, forward-looking thing. And, and then Bill Jemis came in and, 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 and really reinforced that. So the idea of looking back was not something really anybody was really interested in. But Tom, of course, is a lover of, of classic comics, and he sort of spearheaded the essentials, and he kind of kept an eye on the masterworks. But I remember him in an interview saying, um, you know, talking about, hey, will we see, you know, such and such in masterworks? He's like, well, you know, 
we already did that in essentials, and so we don't think that there's enough of a market to you know cannibalize sales from one line to the other. You know, and that was the policy back then. Whether mm. whether that was a legitimate policy or whether that was just a cover for the fact of like they had limited bandwidth to put out these types of uh, collections anyway, and so they didn't want to just come out and say that. But it you know twenty years later, <laughs> I mean, come on. We're put we we put out Dazzler Masterworks. I mean, I mean for real, you know. We're like three hundred volumes in, and we've got Dazzler Masterworks. And and I keep I keep bringing up Tom's name, but I got to shake my fist at Tom. He was ragging on Dazzler on your on your podcast recently, and I was like, I was like, uh, no, leave her alone, leave leave Alison Blair alone. She got her Masterworks. She earned it. Um, you know. It's funny. So, it's funny too. The idea just, that that lines a, would ever cannibalize each other because now it feels like there's so much stuff that gets printed in so many different formats that it kind of makes your mind spin, like your or your head spin. And the fact that that was ever like a concern feels so far removed from where we are now. It does, but it, it also should still remain a concern. I know that you know Marvel. Marvel has, um, you know. They don't do the essentials anymore, but the, they have the superior equivalent, which is the Epic Collections, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, you know color color phone books, so to speak. Um, and oh, they're not really the size of phone books, but they're big, thick trade paperbacks. And then you have um, you have uh, the Masterworks, you have the Omnibus Collections, and then you've got you know the random collections here or there that that pull together like. You know the, the evergreen storylines that might appear also in, in Masterworks. Um, so you know they've got a lot of uh, balls to keep in the air as they juggle uh, their schedule, and that has always been the case. It's just for now we take it for granted that there's so much diversity in the formats available to us, and uh, you know we probably shouldn't take that for granted because we've seen right now this pandemic is uh, you know. It's really constricting, uh, you know, the comic industry right now, and hopefully we'll come out of it, you know, we'll come out of it with business as usual. But all that remains to be seen. So um, I'm still enjoying um, looking forward to uh, these collections uh, for the future, that's for sure. I have a, a, this is a weird question, and it might appear insensitive, so I apologize in advance of the question. But what do you think, like, so someone like Stanley who lived through so many permutations of the comic book industry, through a lot of ebbs and flows, what do you think his pro- probably uh, optimistic take would have been on what's happening with Corona? Like if he had lived to see what had been happening to the industry, he was obviously a very optimistic guy in general. And he had been through some of the, the yeah. highest and lows that the comic book industry had ever been through. He'd obviously lived through them, uh, whether being actually active or at least being kind of still in the stratosphere. Uh, what do you think his take would have been? That's a very good question. I think I have the answer. Um, I would say that, you know, Stan in the last year uh, of his life was not the Stan, you know, he was not the verbose guy that he was in the previous 95 years. (laughs) Uh, But so, you know, assuming we would have gotten that, uh, you know, really uh, hyper literate uh, guy, you know, to be able to the really nimble, nimble tongued guy, um, I think he would come on. Stan Lee would have been the ultimate booster. He would have he would have really been saying that we'll get through this. Comics comics will never die. Um, the, the the art form isn't going anywhere. Comic books as a storytelling art form is not going anywhere. Um, you know, 
we just need to, you know, be concerned about our comic book stores and making sure they store, stay open. Uh, but you know, he would have he would have said he would have said that comics will survive. The the, the form may may change, you know, um, but but comics. If you really do care about comic books, it will still be around. There will still be people who want to tell stories in this way, and uh, and so if that's what you love, um, it will still be around. Um, and I think I think that's what he might have he might have talked about, sort of angling in that direction. Um, as far as the industry, I mean, you know, the the news about Diamond is is frightening, you know. Um, and, you know, one thing I, I can say is from my website, I know that Tales of Wonder as a site sponsor has had to pull their sponsorship uh, temporarily. So that, you know, that has affected my website and the viability of it going forward. <clears throat> Not that I'm going to shut it down or anything, but, you know, I had plans to do certain things that have now had to sort of be recalibrated, hmm. so to speak. Um, but, you know, they don't really have a choice. I mean, when Diamond says they're not going to be, you know, fulfilling uh, new product orders for a while indefinitely, what can they do, you know? Um, and that's those kinds of choices are being made all over the industry. <clears throat> right now, my, uh, you know, my work with Marvel continues. I'm, I'm just as busy as ever working on the monographs and art books, um, you know, but we'll have to see, it, you know, I, I, I like to think it's, it's not a day by day thing, but it really is like a week by week thing. You know, uh, I look well. What's next week going to be like, and what's the week after that going to be like? And you just sort of, you know, pre- prepare yourself for what could happen. And we should be doing that about everything in our lives. We should always be prepared. We should, you know, bad things happen, unexpected things happen, and you should have, you know, some very general contingency plans in place so that you can roll with the punches when they come. You know, and so you know whether it's your job in comic comics or your job, you know, in the energy industry or in retail or in you know um, teaching school or, or anything like that. Driving a bus, you know, driving a truck, you know, it's it, we should all have sort of like uh, in the back of our mind the what ifs about when things like this happen. How are we going to respond? Mm-hmm. So. But as far as comics go, I mean, like I said, I think comics will survive. It's it's an art form. Anybody who thinks, anybody who cares about it as an art form knows that comics will survive. It's just the question of how, mm-hmm. you know. And change can be good. This could be this. There are definite dark, awful, terrible things about this global shutdown. But when we come out of it, there will be some interesting changes that take place that never would have happened without it. Um, some interesting and positive things. So, anyway. So, a question uh, for you. So, obviously, you kind of mentioned uh, in passing kind of working on the monograph books, et cetera. Because of the nature of that kind of product, and again, that, you know, Diamond isn't the only place that those books are being sold, obviously. So, for you, is work kind of right. kind of continue unabated? Because, again, you're working on, like, not, I don't mean older material in a mean way, but I just mean, like, you're you're looking at art and you're not looking at new stories or creating new content. You're looking at existing content and putting it into these books. So obviously it's very different in terms of what you're pulling from. And again, your public, the right. uh, distribution center is not 
Diamond, so you're using other book centers that are still able to publish products. So have there been any changes in terms of release schedules for you guys, or is everything kind of remaining on? Well, I mean, the, the, schedule, the schedule's changed here and there. You know, I think Marvel's taking a, you know, a, a big look at their at their publishing schedule and changing uh, their, you know, production benchmarks accordingly. Um, but, you know, I'm working on a book on Mark Brooks right now, um, and we're in the middle of that. And then uh, next up is Jim Chung. Um, and that's well underway. And then we just had a book on uh, Lionel uh, Francis Yu scheduled. So that's going to be what I'm working on um, in the future. So uh, that's a pretty good trio of, uh, of artists right there. Oh, for sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to continuing to work on those books. And I've also um, you know, been working on my website big time. Um, and also another project, a super secret project. Which Ooh. why don't we save that for you? Don't even know what it is, and you can ask me, and I will I will tell you. So, uh, okay. but we'll save that as a cherry on top for this. Edition, so, all right. Well, so anyway. I, I do have a question about Marvel monographs before we get away from them. Um, where did they come from? Like, where did they? It's, it felt like one day we kind of looked at you know upcoming previews, etc., and suddenly there was these Marvel monograph books, and your name was kind of plastered on every single one, and it just felt like you know they kind <laughs> of they, suddenly there was this explosion well, of these cool art books. But where did the, where did this I know. genesis well, you know, come from? Yeah, the idea was uh, you know uh, Marvel has always been interested in doing art books. I, I mean. I had done a lot of art books in the past. You know, we did one on uh, John Romita Jr., did one on Mike Diodato, oh, yeah. uh, Marco Dudjevic, um, did uh, a big book on the, uh, the, the the first Iron Man movie. And then that, the success of that volume, that, that thing sold out almost overnight, and we did multiple printings of that book. And so Marvel decided to do uh, a book for every movie, you know? Uh, and so that has become its own little side you know, publishing venture for Marvel is to do these big coffee table art books for their movies. And I don't work on those anymore because they've sort of taken those um, in in the studio, so to speak. Uh, you, you sort of, you know, need to be in the mix in the Marvel studios, which I'm not directly. Um, you know, if I lived in L.A., that might be a different story. But, um, but I am still working on art books here and there. I did the um, Art of Conan um, – book recently and we just sent to the printer the uh, Marvel art of the Savage Sword of Conan which is the black and white uh, magazine art um, of Conan but yeah so the monographs is just a you know it's a it's a very interesting series it was um, you know Marvel was looking at ways to diversify what they offer and, and one of the things was like hey why don't we you know why don't we up, up our game with the art books because everybody who loves comic art loves art books um well if they don't they should (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know the monographs were designed to be a entry level sort of uh affordable um you know art book that people could buy the the price point is very affordable it's 19.99 and it focuses on marvel's um I, i can't even say most popular artist Obviously, there's a lot of popular artists that the monographs cover, but there's also some artists who who Marvel kind of looks out as breakout potential breakout talents, you know. And it's a nice mix of name brand artists like J. Scott Campbell um, and uh, you know Jim Chung, and then uh, you know artists like um, Sarah Pacelli, 
who is sort of like, you know, uh, she was a young gun and, and has sort of become really big. Uh, but, uh, you know, her body of work is, makes for a very nice study and, and a single monograph volume. And then you have a guy like Declan Chalvi who, you know, he was even surprised. He's like, wow, he was super flattered that they would want to do this kind of um, study on his work. And if, you know, you look at a book, you, I'm super proud of that book. It's a beautiful book. And, um, and it really shows off his work. He was very, um, he was very connected with the project. He, you know, had a lot of say in how it developed and it was very helpful, um, in the final product. And so, you know, it's, it's a nice uh, range of artists that we've covered. And so for $20, and if you buy from Tales of Wonder, you know, you, you can get discount, sometimes even half, you get a nice, uh, you know, album sized, soft cover uh, art book that really shows off the best of their art and um, with, you know, some editorial content that helps, we think, um, you know, take you inside the art and sort of give a fuller understanding of, you know, of, of what went into making the art and what it, what it means, what it represents um, to Marvel and to comics. So that's sort of what we're going for. And obviously, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of art book critics out there that have a lot of different tastes and that's perfectly fine. I know that the monographs aren't to certain art book collectors tastes. Um, and that's, you can criticize it all you want and I'll say, Hey, thumbs up, man. You know, you (laughs) spend your money the way you want to. Um, and, uh, but I, I think we're all proud of, of, of what, um, we're doing with these books. It's, um, it's a neat little mission that Marvel's created to have this, type of book in the marketplace where you can go in and not, you know, most art books are big hard covers that are 50 bucks at a minimum or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, these are, these are affordable, you know, some, and there's something for everyone. If, you know, if, 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 if this month, you know, you know, you're not really into Mark Brooks, well, next month, maybe you're into Jim Chung and that'll, that'll be the thing that, you know, makes you want to take it home, you know? And they're fun to. Th- I encourage anybody who goes to a bookstore. I know that even in my local um, uh, Books a Million store and and where I live in Florida, uh, the the guy there has a very healthy graphic novel section, and he carries the monographs. And I was very flattered to to walk in there and see that. <laughs> and um, and so you just go to a store, comic book store, um, when when we reopen our economy, and uh, take a look. You know, thumb through it, see what you think. So. I have a question about the upcoming one by Jim Chung. So, I mean, going through all that artwork, I feel like that looking at a lot of Jim Chung's Marvel work must be a little bittersweet because obviously so much of it was colored by Justin Ponzer. And, um, like, yeah, like I I would almost want a book of just his colors because his color work is some of the best I've ever seen. Yeah. Justin's, Justin, uh, and Sarah Pacelli's book had a lot of Justin in it. Mm. And, uh, his his sort of like his his uh, you know world of color that he brought to I mean the the name Ponzer just goes with Chung like you know peanut butter and chocolate <laughs> and, uh, it's like they I love Ponzer's work on uh, on Jim Chung Jim Chung's uh, pencils uh, it's just beautiful and um, just the luminosity and, uh, that, that he brings and uh, the it's just was perfectly calibrated and you know 
he's gone. And uh, it's sad. It's, it's just tragic. A young man uh, in the prime of his career had so much left to give. And just like that, you know, he's not around to do that. And, um, you know, uh, I know that Sarah was very intent on um, making sure we left some grace for Justin in her book. She wanted to make sure that that's been there. Um, our cover choice um, was, uh, was as Justin colored it. We were down to like two choices, and she said, let's choose this one because Justin colored it. So, uh, um, you know, it's, uh, it's sad when, when a talent like him, he's one of the best colorists out, out there. It's sad, obviously, that, that he's gone, and it's sad for the industry. It's sad for the art of comics that he's gone. Well, for sure. I mean, yeah, as you said, like he's not only was he one of the best colors, but he was also such so identifiable. Like you could look at a piece and you know it was him, and that's yeah. that's special. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like I don't even know a lot about colors because I'm colorblind, but I knew I loved him. <laughs> You're colorblind. <laughs> I, I actually, I I mean, it's not like really bad colorblindness, but there's some gradients I don't see, and like I probably see yeah. ten to twenty percent of like the full like everything that you would see. But yeah. I mean. I still could see enough to, to see how intricate his colors were. And I, I remember seeing like his work way back on, I guess, cross-gen books, like way, way back when it was early. And his stuff was amazing. So yeah. it's nice to see it in like a nice you know, art book like this. As you said, like something about, you know, Chung and Ponzer just did go together like peanut butter and chocolate. Like they just felt right. Yes, indeed. And uh, John Dell, too. We can't forget him. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. The sort of the... They're like the you know the power trio, uh, art power trio. There, <laughs> um, I haven't talked with Jim yet about that topic, but um, you know that's something we're gonna dive into. Is you know how he has adapted his art to lose you know such a reliable partner like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, definitely going back to cross gen. You know that's fifteen twenty years. You know and. Uh, so you have to have to rewrite your uh, expectations as an artist when you lose a partner like that. Yeah. So, but Jim Jim has worked with other other colorists here and there. Too. Oh, of course. I mean, you know. yeah. I mean, he wasn't necessarily he wasn't married to Justin. <laughs> right. Uh, so a question I have so. about so a lot of the Marvel monographs are, are obviously of relatively more you know current or more modern uh, illustrators, but the one that kind of is, seems like the big outlier is Arthur Adams. So I'm curious how yes. that came about because that you know when you put it next to all the others, it definitely stands apart. Yeah, well, you know, Marvel does do some uh, sort of straight to hardcover um, uh, volumes, um, and but for. For whatever reason, Arthur wound up in the monograph series, which I was more than thrilled with. Um, and you know, we're looking at doing a second volume of his. Um, the, the first volume focused on his X Men work, um, and so the second volume would be sort of his, you know, the balance of his portfolio with Marvel, which you know he's done some Hulk work, he's done Fantastic Four, um, some of his early work was uh, with Spider Man. Um, you know, the annual, Web of Spider-Man annual, like that. And then his um, recent uh, work is, is just cover after cover for title after title. You know, there's just so much to look at. So hopefully um, we'll do a second volume of his work if the sales on the first one are good. And, uh, you know, obviously we want these books to sell. And I know, I think the first, uh, I think the first volumes have sold very well. 
Um, I, I'm not privy to sales numbers, but I know that I think the J. Scott Campbell book sold out, or um, I'm not sure. But you know, um, the the Campbell book we're looking at doing. Um, once I delved into J. Scott's work, I was like, uh, you you just can't you can't boil this down." And his career is so perfect as a cover artist. I said, "Why don't we just do a?" complete cover chronology of J. Scott Campbell. Why don't we try that? And he liked the idea. And we 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 went to Marvel and said, why don't we try this approach? And you know, and they said, well tell tell J. Scott there's only a guarantee of one volume. And so we talked about it. And you know, if there's only that one volume, then then you know we our statement of his earliest work is all captured in one volume. But um, um you know, then the second volume will come out and pick up after that, and we just keep making them. <laughs> and then, you know, and then you'll eventually have every cover, every cover he ever did for Marvel did uh, in a series of volumes. How killer is that? To me, that's like that's like the best you could imagine for an artist like him. You know, you know, I just think that's great. And so, hopefully, we'll get to do that as time you know as time passes and these books sell. So. So obviously you've worked with a lot of different you know artists in terms of the focus of these different books. How involved are the artists, and is there kind of a spectrum? Like some of them are a little bit more hands off, or are some of them like really kind of uh, more in touch with you about kind of selecting pieces? Like how do how much work really goes into you know which pieces you end up highlighting, and again how much collaboration there is? I'm curious just how they're put together, and maybe that's a naive question, but I'm just curious. No, no, no. It's actually it's an excellent question. Um, no, the, first of all, the artists um, are asked if they want this book, and they're, they're given the chance to say no, obviously. And so, you know, the artists, if they say yes, then, um, you know, after that planning session, they go um, on the list. And, um, you know, and then um, so then I, you know, I make contact with them and start discussing possibilities. And some artists, are, are content to just let us, uh, you know, me and my designer do kind of what we want to do. Um, everything from the art selections to the layout and the text, you know, they just have a very hands-off, um, you know, Frank Cho was like that. Frank, uh, Frank, you know, gave the green light to the book, but, but wasn't involved at all, you know? And, um, and so in the end, that book, um, was the representation of what me and my designer came up with from front to back. And so we were both very proud of the book, but we didn't know what Frank was going to think. And then finally, you know, I sent Frank a PDF of the final uh, version. And, um, and he said, dudes, he's like, this is so great. (laughs) I love it. He's (laughs) like, he said, this would, you know, I could have helped out, but it, it wouldn't have been any better than what you guys did. So that made me and the designer feel fantastic. We felt like, woo, you know, um, what we did, you know, stood up to Frank Cho's, you know, standards. Um, and we really went to town on that book. We got a lot of interesting, um, um, you know, unpublished material, process material, sketches and, uh, you know, uh, pencils and inks. Um, and we, you know, threaded it all together to kind of give a, a, a tapestry of his career from beginning to, to his most recent years. And, um, you know, there's, there's some hidden little treats in there that are fun, too. Some people, some interesting people that we talked to about him and his career that, that are sort of you wouldn't expect. And uh, and so it's just a nice, that's that's a really nice book 
going into it without Frank's input, you're thinking, well, this could go sideways, but it turns out to be a wonderful book. And then you have on the on the right after right right around the same time as Frank, we did with Chris uh, Chris Bishalo. Chris was so in depth involved; he was like super hands on. And we would have conversations every day about what art to include, how to make it look, how to, you know, the proportions we wanted. And then he'd look meticulously go over with us our layouts and he'd look at them and he'd give suggestions and tweaks and all. And we would go back and forth and back and forth. And, and uh, so, so we had two extremes in a two-month period between Frank and Chris. And uh, the, the Chris book is magnificent. It's beautiful. And um, you know it's it's got it's got Chris's design style all over it, uh, and we just basically you know we did a, we did some things on things on our own that he liked and he he kept in you know there were some pieces of art that I said I this must be in or I'm taking my name off <laughs> no I didn't say that but I insisted there's a couple pieces uh, that he drew of Rogue that I that I just have always loved and he didn't initially. Have them on the short list, but I, I got them in there, and uh, and then some other design things that we did um, that he liked, and uh, and it was just a wonderful uh, collaboration. It was great. I never thought in my life I'd be working with Chris Bashala on a book so intimately, and, and and it's it's definitely a feather in my cap. I it was a great experience. It was it was it was a lot of work, but the the work shows in that book, and I hope man, I hope I hope people can go kind of pick that one up and kind of thumb through it and look at it. It's really cool. Chris had a very singular way that he wanted his art to, to be to be looked at. Um, he and he selected you know ninety five percent of the art in there is stuff that he wanted in there and um, some very unusual um, design choices were made that you know that I wouldn't have done, but that's Chris's vision. And having seen him do it, uh, it's just amazing. Just really, really great, mm-hmm. and so uh, you know, it's just a uh, that's that was that was a fun job. That was a fun job, and um, they're all fun to some degree. Um, I haven't had a bad experience yet, and it's been great to get to know all these guys and gals. And um, some of the books we have coming on the horizon are going to be, you know, really cool as well. So. Um, Hopefully, doing follow-up volumes for Ed McGinnis mm-hmm. um, or Arthur Adams. Um, you know, uh, Chris looked at his book as like, if we're going to do one book, I want it to be the best book could possibly be done of me. And I said, well, let's put it all on the table then, you know. And so we did. But if sales are good, we'll figure out a way to do a second volume, <laughs> you know. So. For sure. Now, I have a question about um, some of the, like, kind of the titling of them. For, like, the Humberto Ramos one, it was obviously very clearly, like, the Spider-Man book. What was, kind of, went into that decision? Was that an early decision to kind of, let's focus just on the spider work? Or how did that discussion kind of go? Yeah, with Humberto, Humberto was the second book we did. No, Humberto was the first book, Humberto and J. Scott. And those guys are two completely different artists in many ways. Because, you know, J. Scott is a cover artist, um, you know, 99.9% exclusively a cover artist. Um, and Umberto is, does everything. You know, he does uh, interiors and he does covers too. But, um, but, uh, but, but they had one thing in common and that was uh, Spider-Man. <laughs> they, are, they are two of the preeminent 
uh, Spider-Man artists and Spider-Man sort of universe artists. Uh, Jay Scott is uh, most especially known for uh, you know Mary Jane and Black mm-hmm. Cat, and um, and so with uh, you know when I, once I jumped into the research on Umberto, I you know the first thing I do is just build a database of of everything he's ever done, published for Marvel covers. Um, interior art um i track all his collaborators i, I try to you know build a, a, a really solid spreadsheet and then i just start looking at it i'm like how what do we do here how do we how do we do this and um umberto's work a year ago at least was split right down the middle it was half spider-man and half other it was a very neat and tidy division um and i said well you know we could do one volume or why don't we why don't we do two? Why don't we look at you know why don't we try to do two? And so that was our first experiment in saying let's do a two volume set. And again, this comes with the disclaimer of like the first volume has to sell. If it doesn't sell, then then there won't be a second volume. But with the first volume, we do have a complete Umberto Spider Man book. So it makes sense on its on its own. You know, it makes total sense to capture that side of his career in a single art book. Mm-hmm. And so even if we don't do a second volume, which would be X-Men, you know, it would be Avengers and X-Men and, and all kinds of other good stuff. Even if we never do that book, we'll still have, you know, a really great, great book on Umberto and Spider-Man. So does which, that make sense? Yeah, no, for sure. I'm, I'm looking at the, the kind of the roster that you guys have done so far. Which one do you think, had and I have maybe my own projections that I would put on it, but which one do you think had the most kind of disparate elements in terms of like not having as as concrete a thorough line of characters, et cetera? Like obviously with Humberto, you you, know, you had Spider Man, you could kind of focus on that with the first book. Um, you know, Assad Ribic. Obviously, you you have some of the, the kind of the, the big highlights, which again are kind of easier to quantify. Which one do you feel like was the most tonally big shifts between characters or directions? Even though the art was obviously the same artist, but you were having the most shifts between types of characters and and general feeling. Huh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I might say um, I might say Ducklon, um, just because um, he's sort of like uh, you know he's 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 sort of like a hidden gem in, in Marvel's, uh, art stable. You know, um, I don't know. I, I would definitely see if he was in the next young guns class. Um, you know, because, but he's been in Marvel now for about 10 years and, you know, his, his, his stuff is on books like Thunderbolts, you know, um, which was never, um, you know, it was never the biggest title, but that's sort of what he, um, that was his first ongoing title that he did. Um, and so with, we did a pretty long look at his Thunderbolts material. Um, and, um, uh, and then Venom, um, he did, he did a bunch of Venom stuff in the, um, Rick Remender, Cullen Bunn run, <laughs> uh, unintentional, unintentional rhyme there. Um, you know, and then, you know, he, he's done some Deadpool and, and, uh, Wolverine stuff. Um, so I don't know. I guess I guess there is a through line with him in the sense that he's got sort of these nitty gritty characters. Moon Knight, that that instant classic run with Warren Ellis, mm-hmm. um, that was a really beautiful chapter we did on that, um, and we got to show a lot of different sides of Declan's artistry in that chapter. Um, you know, his knack for storytelling. He's he's one of the best storyteller tellers that Marvel has right now, and um, 
so we really showed that off in a, in a great sequence um, from the Moon Knight series. Um, and, uh, and then Nick Fury sequence in Choosing Sides, which was, which was a story he wrote. So, um, and in fact, you know, if I think about it, Declan also is, holds distinction as being, I think, no, Frank Cho. So Declan and Frank Cho are two artists who also write. Um, and so that has an interesting parlay into the way you look at their art. And when you look at his, um, uh, Nick Fury series and choosing sides, which is only six stories about 10, eight to 10 pages each. Um, he had to really, really zero in on a storytelling for that. You could not waste a panel in you know, in a, in a condensed storytelling like that. And so we, that was a really great opportunity to show off some of his really cool storytelling. Um, and, uh, yeah. And in fact, that was the first book working with, um, Jay Bowen, our current designer. And, um, that was a fun time to work, uh, to break in with him was on a book like this, but yeah, Declan, um, you know, Declan had, um, I guess there is a through line, like I said, with his work and that it's sort of like street level gritty, um, textures. Um, and those, all his characters sort of carry that, um, I don't know. Sarah, Sarah's book, Sarah Pacelli, but she has a lot of, you know, Miles Morales in there to sort of put her stamp on that. So maybe Mark Brooks, the one I'm working on right now, Mark, um, Mark's had a very interesting career. Mark, um, Mark did a lot of interior work in the, in the two thousands. Um, but in the last 10 years, he's done very little. And in, in the last five years, He's only done one series, and that's the Han Solo um, series mm-hmm. uh, from about four, four years ago. Um, Mark has pretty much transferred all his skills over to cover art. And so this is a very interesting book, and, and Mark and I have worked very closely on this. Um, you know, we, uh, we're, looking at a, we're looking at a hopeful you know, two-volume series, but again – we go into this knowing that there might only be just one volume. So this first volume is going to be sort of a career retrospective of Mark. And so the first half is a lot of his interior work where he was still sort of perfecting his talents and he wasn't quite where he wanted to be as an artist for a long period of time, but, you know, just working, working, working and developing. Uh, And he had, he had a breakthrough about nine or 10 years ago that, led to a remarkable change in his style. And ever since then, he's sort of, you know, felt like he's been doing continually great work that's been getting better, you know. He, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting those words on him. He's not sitting around saying how great he is, trust me. He's very <laughs> self-deprecating. I, I'm saying that about him. But but he is definitely, you look at his covers now, and there's an event. Each cover is, a, is an event. And the one he did for our book, um, which I don't know if it's out yet. I don't. I know that. I know that we just did the logo placement of it, and, and he he loved it. Thought it was great, and so um, that you might be seeing that very soon. Maybe by the time this podcast airs, I encourage people to go check it out. Mark has a great Instagram feed, and he shares, um, and also on Facebook, he shares works in progress. So some people who follow him already have seen the Psylocke cover. And what's great about that cover is Psylocke is like in my top five X-Men of all time. <laughs> and, um, you know, Mark, um, you know, Mark and I were discussing what he would do, 
you know, with a cover. And, you know, we thought he should do something probably X-Men related. And, and, um, so he went, he went away and, you know, um, uh, thought about some ideas and then he turned his sketch in to me and it was Psylocke, a single shot of Psylocke. It was not a group and it was not an ensemble of X-Men with Psylocke in it. It was Psylocke all by herself (laughs) and it was breathtaking. It was gorgeous. And, but I was like, I was like, will Marvel go for this? I mean, she's not A-list, you know, she's not. You know, she's not Wolverine or Deadpool, you know. Um, but uh, thankfully, they were thrilled. They thought it looked fantastic. And so Psylocke will be on the cover to uh, Mark's uh, monograph volume. And he did two versions of it. He did one version that he didn't, he, you know, it it wasn't quite going the direction he wanted. Uh, so he sort of did a second version with some subtle changes to it. Um and, but we'll have both versions in the book, <laughs> so that'll be that'll be uh, you know added, you'll you'll get to see the uh, the original version um, and get to compare with the version that's on the front cover. So, um, but man, to have a book with Psylocke on the cover that I you know edited that's just like that's what you live for. <laughs> it's great stuff. For sure. It's funny. So that that was the one I was thinking in my head that would have been the one that maybe didn't have as direct a thorough line. And that's no disrespect against Mark. But I was just thinking, like, was is there like one major kind of component that kind of followed him through throughout his work? And I couldn't couldn't think of one. Whereas with the other ones, it felt like there was more of connective tissue that you could kind of build and put together. Yeah, Mark, let's say Mark for this. And Mark would probably be the first to say that his career has, you know, you know, it it has followed the beat of of his own drum. You know, his career is not like not like the others, um, and uh, you know the better for it. You know, Mark Mark uh, has developed his art over the years. He responds to um, you know what other people say about it, but also his own gut feeling about um, the directions he wants to take it, and the fact that he's exclusive to covers now. Um, you know that can always change. I, I asked him, you know. Well, when are you going to be back in the game on interiors? And he, you know, he, he's not ruling it out. That's for sure. But there's nothing on the table now. Um, you know, um, maybe check, let's check back next week. (laughs) But, uh, but you know, he, you know, he, you know, he is certainly in that top echelon of cover artists for Marvel. You've got Adi Gronov in there, J. Scott Campbell. Um, you know, the, the guys who are both, uh, prolific and, really really good you know um mark brooks is in that conversation and just wait till you see the silent cover it's beautiful (laughs) um i I mean i'm sure you can't really spoil too much about future volumes but like when you talked about kind of talking with the artists seeing if they're open to having a book and then kind of putting it on the list how deep is that list that you kind of guys are kind of working through not to mention the volume twos yeah, well, the, the list is pretty good. Um, you know, it's uh, you know things are things are in flux right now because of the pandemic and all. And I, I certainly hope we we get to do everything we want to do for this year. Um, but uh, there's no, well, we haven't really we haven't featured anybody that didn't deserve it yet. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, Marvel has so many wonderful artists that. Um, that'll keep us busy for a while. And then once we start circulating second volumes in, knock on wood, um, you know, this, this is a series of art books that has legs, especially, you know, 
the, the affordability of it alone makes it a nice um, continual purchase for people that really want to sort of have a more intimate understanding of what makes these Marvel artists tick, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm looking forward to more. As far as who, all I can tell you is, um, you know, I've told you Lionel Yu. Um, that's, uh, uh, the, that's one I'm working on right now, but beyond that, so, but I'm certainly excited about each and every one of them, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a question about the Lionel Francis you, and you don't have to tell me, but I mean, like, is that going into that book? I mean, as you said, like m- most of these artists could easily have two volumes, if not more. So like, we kind of know that going in that there's a lot of material that a lot of these guys have. So if the sales ever bore it out, obviously you guys could do more, but for someone like Lionel Francis, you, who a lot of his career was kind of, there's a lot of X-Men work and a lot of kind of Wolverine work in his career. Do you have a kind of a, an X focus on his first volume or is it more of a wide kind of spread? I don't know yet. I actually just got into researching, so I don't. I can't answer that question. And a lot of it will have to do with what, what Lionel thinks. I'll, I'll certainly ask him. I was when I started getting into Chris Bishalo's work. Um, I was like, "Well, this has to be two volumes. It just has to be. There's so much great work here, and Chris has done so much with the X Men that we could just do one book on the X Men, mm-hmm. and uh, and then do another book of all kinds of stuff. There's just too much good work." over the last 30 years for Chris Bishalo at Marvel. Well, talking to Chris, he had the opposite opinion. He's like, let's <laughs> just do one book. We'll, we'll just make it the best book possible. And so I was like, but, but, but. And he was like, no, let's just, let's just put it all out. Let's just, let's just put it all in one book and let it ride, let it rip. <laughs> I was like, I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, I take my orders from them. Uh, you know, th- they have to be happy with these books, and that's what everybody involved in these books at Marvel, from me to the designer to our supervisors in the office, um, everybody knows that the ultimate person to be happy with these books is the artists themselves. And so that's why we bend over backwards to accommodate them however we can. And, um, you know, Hopefully we hit the mark, um, you know, and, uh, you know, they're, they're happy with what uh, they see when they get their hands on it. So far, so good, I think. I think um, I know that um, I've gotten a lot of good feedback from the artists on them. But, um, but with Lionel, I started research. He's a great artist. He's got a long career. He's got a big body of work. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, he definitely, there was periods where he was like, you know, he was, uh, you know, hitting deadlines. Like he was putting out like, you know, 12 books. Oh, yeah. You know, he wasn't one of those guys who was putting out a little bit, and that's no offense on people who take a little bit more time on putting together their craft, but he was always a guy who delivered great work and a lot of it. Uh, kind of like, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if anyone will ever, you know, kind of measure out the metric ton that Mark Bagley has put out in terms of modern artists, but like, you know, he's definitely put out his right. fair share. <laughs> Yeah, Bagley's great. But Lionel, Lionel not only did a lot of work, but he did a lot of big event work, a lot of really key stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, because he's certainly one of the big, the big, the big shots, you know. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to that one. Is there an artist? I mean, and I mean, obviously, you'd love to give art books to everyone, but is there someone who's maybe not in the more modern crop that you'd love to kind of go back to and really get to kind of go into their back catalog and, and, and give them a book? Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, <laughs> the yes. List will not end. Who would kind of be on like a, on your kind of wish list? Not only to put together you know a book representative of their work, but also to kind of work with that artist and kind of figuring out what that even would look like. 
Because obviously that's a really cool experience to be able to. Well, come. I got to scratch that itch with uh, Arthur Adams. I mean, that yeah. was like, you know, working with Arthur on that book was so much fun, and uh, you know, uh, just talking to him, um, you know, on a regular basis, I was like, you know, like checking to make sure that. Uh, this was real, you know, but, uh, Arthur's very down to earth, very, you know, as far as comic artists go, a normal guy, which isn't saying much actually, because most comic artists are unusual <laughs> in some way or another. <laughs> uh, and, but yeah, that was, that was really great. Uh, you know, Arthur probably would have been top of the list for, for that. And sure enough, there he was. Um, I would love to do a John Romita book. John Romita Sr. Um, and, uh, you know, an, an artist who I thought of that would be great to do an art book on um, would be, um, but who's no longer with us, is uh, Gil Kane. Mm. I think uh, I think Gil's work would be a wonderful study to, to follow um, not, not only his interior work, but, you know, he was, he was the covers guy in the 70s, you know. He did so many covers. And just to have sort of like, I'd, in fact, I'd love to do just a covers book. Of Gil Kane, that would be really cool. Um, so, those are the kind of things I fantasize about. There's some other modern artists I would love to do. Um, I, you know, we're sort of they're sort of in the mix um, whether or not they'll uh, they'll make the cut. We'll see. <laughs> but and and, and not, not to I, and this is kind of more of a. Well, I, mean, I guess we've been talking about how the sausage sausage is made, but obviously, like Marvel's happy with. You know the the sales on the books. I would imagine. I mean, they wouldn't keep doing them obviously if they weren't profitable and if they didn't sell well. And as you said, they're kind of they hit that nice price point because you know they're very affordable and they're gorgeous books. And again, they're these top flight artists. So I mean, I would be surprised if they didn't sell well because again, it's kind of like they hit all the ingredients to sell a book well. Yeah, and you know these are perfect for um, picking up at a convention too. If, if you're at a convention and you know. Mark Brooks is there, or Declan Shalvey, or Chris Bishalo. You know, pick up a copy of this book and have him sign it. You know, have him do a little sketch on it somewhere. You know, it's it's uh, it's perfect for that. You know, um, and it you know, kind of book you want on your shelf. You know, to to, to look at. And, you know, just know that you know, to whatever degree the artist is involved, they you know what you see hopefully is is representative of their art of their art in that time frame at Marvel and you know it's uh so if you if you like any of these artists then you you probably would enjoy having these books absolutely but yeah I think I think my wish list would be if you ever do one for uh for Ron Friends because I I would be there first day (laughs) oh man Ron's great I I was just looking at some of his um art on uh remember he did some of the magic Magic Storm and uh, Iliana series. Oh yeah, uh, in the eighties, and I was just looking at because he came in after John Basima to do um, some work on that series, and I was just looking at that. Ron's great, uh, you know. Of course, Ron. I think every artist, every artist that has a body of work, deserves an art book, whether it's something that Marvel would do or whether it's something that you know they might try to do on their own. Um, you know, I would love a Ron Friends art book. Of course, you know he was he was a fun artist, still is. Oh yeah. So, um, you know that, that, that guy that guy did so much work for so long for Marvel on some really important books. 
So yeah, funny you mentioned him. I guess he's one of your favorites. Definitely, and I, I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to have him on the podcast a bunch, and like I, I've, I've come to love him even more because he's also been such a um, a warm, you know, a, just very encouraging individual. Like he's always happy. To, you can tell he loves comics and just loves what he does, and so that always comes yeah. comes comes very clear. And he's just been very very gracious with his time. Like one of my favorite books when I was younger, and definitely something that meant to me a lot to me uh, was his run on A Next, which is part of the MC two line that is not, you know, it's not right. that it's, it's, I just feel like it's one of those books that kind of happened at a certain time. And then people moved on and people don't ever talk about it, which I always thought was a shame. So he was uh, gracious enough to spend like four and a half hours with me, just breaking down like all 12 issues on the podcast of which the latter six, we actually had Tom come on as well. Uh, the Falco to talk about it as well. And that was like, you know, the, the, the comic nerd inside me from when I was even younger was so happy that this was a real thing that got to happen in my life that I got to talk about a book that I love with the people who actually put it together and go like to ridiculous detail about it was, um, one of my like fondest memories. Well, Ron, uh, Ron's one of that sort of, uh, you know, more contemporary creators that still had one foot on the side of the legends, you know, the, the Ditko's and the Ramitas and the Canes and, and those guys, you know, Gene Colan, Sal Basima, John Basima. Ron Friends knew all those guys. He worked with those guys, you know, mm. he, he respected them, you know. Um, and so he sort of, um, you know, he was able to sort of uh, carry the torch, so to speak, um, on that classic storytelling style into the 90s, you know, at, certainly with the stuff he did in the Spider Girl universe will live forever you know that stuff was really really cool and mm-hmm. very significant for a, for a, for a, for a sizable fan base you know um so yeah definitely a definitely a ron fan that's for sure so yeah let's let's lobby for a ron friends art book man what are, what's what are we waiting for right people gotta write in that's right well, you know, it's interesting, like, and just in general, when it comes to collected editions, I feel like eventually, like, weird stuff gets printed if people want it, and if people say they want it, and then eventually we'll get it. Like, the fact that we have Spider-Girls entering, I think it's third volume of Complete Collections, like, I kind of never thought it would happen, even though it was the little book that kept selling forever. It just somehow felt right. like it was never going to get that proper, you know, trim size, uh, and not like a digest right. size, and finally we, you know, we're getting them, and, you know, eventually these things do happen, and if people say they want them and actually you know send letters and emails like people do read this stuff i've been getting the uh complete collections which has enabled me to find new homes for those old digests (laughs) (laughs) which as i get older it's like i just can't read them anymore they're just too tiny i have to get a microscope out you know but um (laughs) you know my eyesight is not the best anymore but um but i'm very happy to have them in complete collections that's for sure so so I want to jump back to, to the Masterworks for a second. So you, at the beginning of our conversation, you kind of mentioned how you know they're closing in on, on the, the 300th volume. Um, as someone who has been buying for so long and has them all, like how does that make you feel that you almost have this like 300 volumes now? It's pretty amazing, and I can't wait because with volume 301, it's going to be all Dazzler from here on out. <laughs> it's just Dazzler, Dazzler, Dazzler. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, no, it's fantastic. 300 uh, is just an epic number. And I, I was thinking about it uh, the other day after the passing of Dale Crane. You know, Dale mm-hmm. uh, was a significant figure with the DC archives, um, which was, you know, 
sort of the the DC version of the Masterworks. Um, And in fact, the archives had sort of lapped Masterworks and sort of shoved it in Masterworks' face (laughs) about, you know, the productivity of that line compared to what Marvel was doing. And Dale was a big part of that. And Dale, Dale eventually left DC, but, but you know, would would do restoration work for Marvel, and he would work on the Masterworks and certain omnibus volumes and what have you. He would work for Corey, and you know, did great work on that stuff. And um, it just took me back to the early years of when I started the website, and where um, talking with Bob Greenberger, who is where I found out about Dale's passing on his Facebook page. And, you know, those early years of Bob sort of cutting me in on the insider info on the Masterworks program and how, it, you know, the possibilities of what the Masterworks could become were measured in like two to three volume dra- dribs and drabs. It's mm-hmm. like, well, we had a big meeting and we think we know what maybe the next two or three volumes might be. <laughs> you know, and it's like you're 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 like, oh my god, that's so incredible! I remember him talking about the possibility of doing a Nick Fury volume, and I, it just blew my mind that you're telling me that here we are and it's 2002 and we might have a Nick Fury volume. That's amazing! <laughs> and now, flash forward 20 years, and it's like, yeah, we've got Nick Fury. We've got we've got Nick Fury in Masterworks. We've got him in Omnibus. We've got him in you know we might have him in you know soft covers coming soon. Who knows, you know? And then you know it's like how far have we come? And now it's like oh yeah, we got a whole year's worth of Masterworks announcements now to share with you, you know? <laughs> and um, you know it's just yeah, hey, you just take it as it comes, man. And like I've always said, you know, uh, even if you're not planning to buy this or that masterworks, the fact that it's 300 volumes and growing gives you a lifetime to eventually come around to this material and this format. (laughs) The fact that it's out there, once it, once it comes off those cargo ships and is on store shelves, they can't take it back. You know, actually they can, (laughs) but you know what I mean? Follow me me here on this. They can't take it back. It's out there and it's yours for the having to, to put on your shelf and be part of your wonderful library of classic marvel material that's put out in this hardcover format everything i could have ever dreamed for when i started the website has has just become true and uh and it continues to be so i I keep you know i talk with Corey about the the upcoming schedule and what may or may not be coming out and it's just like oh yeah uh we're halfway through uh burn ff oh yeah we just kicking kicking off miller daredevil you know, we're we're working our way through Stern Spider Man. You know, we're almost to Stern Avengers, Stern and Basima, Basima and Tom Palmer. You know, it's like, I mean, what more could you want if you're if you're my age and, and a lover of these, not only of these types of comics but these types of collections? I mean, it just keeps going. You know, and yes, Dazzler, Tom Tom Reaver, I'm buying. I'm buying all the Dazzler Masterworks, Tom. I don't care what you say. Uh, because, yeah, maybe they're not the best comics of all. But, you know, I read a lot of these with the sort of um, – I put my little comic book historian hat on. But also I put on the, little, the hat of myself as a 12, 13-year-old 
that wanted to read it all but couldn't because I could only mow so many lawns, you know, <laughs> and I, I only had I had a limited budget. I, I I couldn't read it all, but I wanted to. I wanted to read it all, and now I can. You know, and I can I can I can read a dazzling masterworks, and it takes me back to that time of when I could have and should have read it but didn't. And you know, you get I get a little bit of a kick of of like. Well, this was what this is what life in the '80s was like. This is, you know, these were the pop culture references. These were the comic book storytelling, you know, you know, methodologies that were popular at the time. You know, that's that stuff's valuable to me. It's important to me, and I enjoy it above and beyond whether it's Dazzler or <laughs> Spider Woman or you know the Avengers or. X-Men or whatever, you know. Do you, do you get um, more satisfaction in seeing the, like, you know, volume 18 or volume 22, or is it in the volume ones, the stuff that, again, 20 years ago, probably would never have thought would ever get to a Marvel Masterworks, like Ghost Rider or something like that? I like, I love seeing the short runs collected. I love, like, uh, I'm really looking forward to Kazar volume three. I want that. <laughs> and then Kazar volume four, you know. And then you've got all the Kazar, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> the stuff with the longer volumes, it's so easy to take those for granted. But again, you just see Fantastic Four on the schedule and you're like, John Byrne FF looking better than ever, you know. It's like, sign me up. So there's stuff to like about both of them. But yeah, anytime you add a new sort of entry to the uh, Masterworks canon, um, you get excited about that, you know. And stuff like... Omnibus too, like Eternals Omnibus coming up has um, the Kirby series newly restored, but it also has all this other stuff that's never seen print before mm. um, by the Eternals. And even though you know some of it's dodgy, not gonna lie, um, <laughs> that that eighty five miniseries was sort of a glorious mess. You know, it, it started out one way and it it ended in another. You know, and but to me again, that's interesting stuff to me. That's interesting. I want to. I want. I, w- I want to read it for the entertainment value, but I also it, find it edifying to sort of see the gears turning. And, and you know, I read back issue. I read alter ego. I read all these. You know, I read um, all this historical stuff, and so I get to sort of have that context as I'm reading as well. It's just very interesting. You know, for sure. Um, so. Back Issue Magazine is one of the things I, I'm embarrassed to say it took me so long to really know what it was and I, I'm so embarrassed because I love comic book history and find it engrossing and somehow I just missed it for like 10 years and then suddenly I like it was at uh, and I guess at the store I'm at in Canada they didn't really stock it ever and then I saw it one day I'm like I've heard of this and I took it home and I was like why where have I been where like what cave have I been living in that this amazing historical record has been put together for so long so I've just been trying to get as many back issues of, of back issues as I can because it's it's just an amazing yeah. historical record well you gotta read Alter Ego too are you reading Alter Ego I'm getting into those as well Ego. yeah Okay. All right. Good. But it's embarrassing. Like I, I'm someone who loves yeah, comic book history. Where, where I don't know what cave I was in. I guess you thought it was. I guess you thought it was like a, a, a collector's guide or something, or like pricing, I don't know. pricing guide. I, I don't know what would make me sound like less of an idiot, but like I don't know. Well, at least you admit it. So, That's know, the first step, right? The first step is recognizing you had a problem, and now you're better step. than that. Some of us refuse to. Some of us refuse to acknowledge it. But 
I will acknowledge it. I'm an idiot. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I want to get back to the website for a second. So you mentioned that obviously that you know this year is the big anniversary year, and some things have maybe been put on the back burner. But what can you talk about in terms of your plans or things you're you're looking forward to adding or or implementing throughout the year? So uh, yes, it is the 20th anniversary. Um, I've done a very soft launch of a new redesign, but there's going to be more stuff coming down the pike. Um, about the way the site looks and functions. Uh, but right now, what I'm trying to do is just get all the content people have been accustomed to with the old site on the new one. And the old one had long needed it. became sort of a stupid idiot joke about me. Yeah, this is the year. I'm finally going to do a, <laughs> you know, a website upgrade, a website revamp, and everybody would be excited. And then I'd, I'd even start on it. I would start developing it and working on it, on it, but then you know, stuff would happen, and I'd have to put it on the back burner. Um, but I've got it on the front burner now. I've got three front burners. <laughs> Adam, I've got three front burners. All right. And each one has stuff on it, and one of those three front burners is the website. And so um, we're we're now working out of WordPress, uh, and I have gotten accustomed to WordPress and how to how to make it how to make it do the things I want it to do. It still is doing things that I don't want it to do, and I can't force it yet to do what I want to do, but I'm learning. Um, and, you know, things are going really well. Um, and then um, in January, um, or was it, no, it was like the first or second week in February, um, the website was hacked. Hmm. And so uh, it went offline for about two weeks, and it took forever and a lot of money to get it restored. And I had to sort of redo a lot of things. But um, it just delayed things a little bit and was a little bit expensive for the bottom line. But I'm back in the saddle, and if people go to the site now, collectededitions.com, um, you'll see kind of some cool stuff there. You know, um, for one thing, the preview pages are nearly are nearly fully curated. Um, the ones that you see on the site to where I want them to be, with the book information that that everyone values. And um, uh, a full complement of preview art from the book. So, like, if you click on, you know, Thor Masterworks Volume 19, you'll get uh, preview art from from the actual book. You know, they're, and they're not scans; they're from they're from the art files of the book, and they look really sharp and really good. So, from a consumer standpoint, it gives you a chance to evaluate the book. And then from an art lover's standpoint, it's just like, oh, this art looks so awesome. It's just a neat way to spend some of your time. And the way these galleries operate um, is really satisfying, I think, from a user standpoint. Hmm. Um, and so also the front cover artwork. We've got um, the front cover artwork for all the, all the, all the uh, pages that are currently live. Um, we've got those galleries full to the brim as well. And I've tried to properly credit um, each piece of art so you know who did it and uh, um, and then um, I'm setting up a tagging system so you can cross-reference certain things in the site you know if you want to track you know um, Steve Ditko stuff you can click on him and all the books that are on the site that relate to him will pop up for you to search um, that, that side of the site is in development still um, I'm really just trying to do the low-hanging fruit of getting content up about 
Masterworks and Omnibus volumes so that people can take a look inside. It's like, you know, how Amazon has a look inside mm-hmm. any, any, any book with it's that on steroids, you know, it's, it's like, <laughs> it's like everything hopefully that you could have ever wanted as a potential buyer of books like this to be armed with the information and the, uh, quality control, uh, ahead of time that you could possibly want. That's my goal with this. Wow. So, so that's what I'm working on right now. And there's other things coming that I can't really talk about uh, because that's just the surefire way to jinx them. But yep. for now, um, the site is looking great. And I'd encourage people to drop on by and take a look at it. Um, like I said, it's a soft launch. I'm going to have a real big launch maybe a month or two from now where where it's like sort of a grand reopening and we have some really cool events built around it. And, um, I know there's also talk on the message board about maybe moving our forum and I'm sort of investigating that, mm. maybe hosting our own forum so that, you know, we can keep as many as the cool things as possible, but also streamline it so there's no advertisements and all that, you know. Now, one thing I will say about that is the cost of operating my website continues to go up while the revenues temporarily we hope have gone down significantly so i spend out of pocket a lot for this site it it really is a labor of love right now um and so with that in mind i am going to be adding google ads to the website um it hasn't happened yet but i'm going to do that soon because i need to get some revenue coming in for it but you know it's tied to your search history so if you see things you don't like then just blame yourself uh you know but uh you know, so but hopefully it won't be garish and ugly and dis- and distracting. Um, but that'll be one thing. I also do sincerely appreciate the people who have um, helped uh, support the message board by throwing in you know a buck here, a buck there, ten bucks here, ten bucks there, and helping um, helping support the mess the message board. Um, it's I am taking names. And so uh, your uh, generosity will be uh, will be much appreciated um, in real and in, in ways more than just me thanking you at some point soon. Uh, I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Um, so okay. So uh, we're running a little bit short on uh, the time that we had allotted for ourselves, and so we did have some questions come in from the Marvel Masterworks forum, so I'd be remiss if I didn't turn it over to them really quickly for some rapid-fire questions, if you're okay with that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right, so we got some from Dave Tone. Um, So first up, uh, what was it like working on the upcoming The Marvel Art of Savage Sword of Conan book? What is involved with writing on a book like that? And does you know, sorry, do you know if the book will contain every cover or if it's more of a best of book? Well, uh, hey, Dave Tunn. Um, I uh, loved working on that book. Um, I had to read all the Savage Sword. So I didn't want to miss out on anything. What I, I know Conan fans are really hardcore, and we did, the, we did the first book, which was focusing on the color art, which was the Conan the Barbarian series um, from 1970 to 19, basically 1990, or, I mean 2000. So you have three decades of the flagship color series, plus all the spinoffs like King Conan, the giant-sized Conan, the annuals, and then 
you know, the graphic novels in the later series in the latter half of the 90s. And so that book focused on all the color art. And I always knew that there obviously was another story to tell with, with Conan, that if you just did one book, and the book is 224 pages, you, you just can't, that's just like, that's like going into McDonald's and walking out with one chicken McNugget, you know, it's just not satisfying. <laughs> Even as delicious as that McNugget might be, um, let's say a McRib. Mm. That's, that's what everybody loves the McRib sandwich. Actually, no, they don't. But anyway, I'm getting off on a stupid tangent. <laughs> but so we just decided to focus on the color stuff for that book. But I knew on the horizon would be a Savage Sword book. And to me, um, it's possibly even better if you can imagine that than the color book because. Um, Savage Sword is just, you know, it also p- published for about, it, it, it went from 70, well, when you include Savage Tales, um, it went from about 1971 through the mid-90s. And so there was a, breaking every record imaginable by far for Marvel uh, Black and White uh, comics. Conan owned the title, heavyweight title, black and white magazine. You know, you had you had Shang Chi that had a nice run there, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, Iron Fist, those guys. Um, you had uh, Dracula. You had some other magazines, but Conan was the one that had staying power. Um, and so, you know, you had Barry Windsor Smith and John Basima, who are known for their color comics, but they also had significant. Um, significant contributions to black and white. Gil Kane as well. Neil Adams. All the guys you know from the color comics also would do their black and white work. And you get just a different sensibility to their work when you see it in black and white. White. Uh, they, they had a totally different approach to their work. Um, knowing it would be printed in black. And, um, it's just raw and visceral and um, you really get a chance to see their anchors as well. Um, better. Um, in this format and so um and frankly with that you know each magazine it came out you know bi-monthly for a while and then monthly each magazine has like 60 some odd pages of, of art to select from <laughs> and it has a lot of great pinup work and and then we haven't even started talking about the covers fully painted covers by the by the masters or earl nora boris vallejo you know, and you know, Jim Starlin did some covers. Neil Adams, John Basima did some covers. Um, it's it's you know to get to see John Basima do a dabble in painting. You know, it's just unbelievable. And so the question is, no, it's not all the covers. That would make a wonderful book on its own. But um, we had to balance um, the two things. We had to balance well, actually, multiple things. You had the interior artwork. You had the storytelling artwork. You also had the pinups. You had a lot of pinups to choose to choose from. Mm-hmm. You had uh, cover art, and then you had um, you know the sort of the, um, the 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 sort of overlooked element of uh, Conan art, Savage Sword art, is the um, art that would support the text pieces. You know the the articles and stuff like that. There was some really neat, intriguing art. There's a series um, of, of, of Work that Al Williamson did, Gene Day, um, you know, guys like that. Who uh, Mike Kaluta, 
some of Mike Kaluta's earliest work is just gorgeous stuff that was used to, to you know, make a text text piece look less boring, you know? <laughs> and um, so I try to include some of that. Um, and and so it, it sort of covers, you know, the gamut of what Savage Sword meant, not just to the readers, but to the creators that came to involve themselves in it. And, oh, there was one thing I, I just, it was like, it was like uh, an unexpected surprise um but i didn't i wasn't aware of it until i got heavy into the research but in the early 80s alex toth did a portfolio of conan work (laughs) and so uh, it just blew my mind to see that stuff it's so killer and so uh we you know we got that material looking really great and included a lot of it in the book (laughs) um so that's that's in there Uh, but just to see alex seeing alex toth do conan and to bring that very animated cartoon style he had to Conan gave you a sort of a, I don't know what editorial was thinking back then, but, and maybe the Conan intellectual property owners at the time flinched from developing that further. They were like, well, this is great. We can do it as a portfolio, but we don't want Conan to look like this. We don't want people to get used to Conan looking like this. Hmm. Um, So it was only that sort of like, you know, trapped in amber type experience, you know, uh, to see Conan like that. But, oh, it would have been great to have Alex Toth do his own Conan book, you know. Um, and this is a sort of tantalizing treat to your mind to sort of figure out what it would have been like. You know, you can use these pinups that he did to sort of like tell the rest of the story of what what never came to be. Also, um, so we did get Roy Thomas to write the introduction, and I uh, got P. Craig Russell to write the afterword. Oh, wow. So um, it's funny because I, I like to choose. We, we want Roy to do any Conan book. We want him to do a, an introduction because he's the man when it comes to Conan. <clears throat> but for the for the first Conan art book and for the Savage Sword book, I wanted to find people that you didn't, you weren't really, you know. You didn't really know maybe that they had a lot to do with Conan or whatever. Now, Craig Russell clearly is one of the great fantasy artists of all time. I mean, he is, you know, the only reason, you know, you don't hear him anymore is, you know, he's not as prolific maybe in comics, you know. Um, but his body of work is stunning. And he, he, you know, but he only did literally one piece of art in Savage Sword. Just one. <laughs> so <laughs> we made sure to include that. Uh, but what he represents is a person who was with those people. He was with Barry Smith. He he was with all those guys, Mike Kaluta. He knew all of them. He talked with all of them in the prime of their careers. He, he was very interested in what was going on in that magazine and in fantasy illustration in general. Um, and so he had some really great insights into what made that magazine and what made that character tick in black and white and so um so it was really nice to get him to do the afterword and for the first conan book the color comic um i got mike allred to do it because conan is one of his favorite comics and he's never done conan he's never drawn conan but conan is one of his favorites one of the most significant comics to him as a comic book nerd growing up and uh so it was a real thrill to get him to write um, the afterword for the first Conan book. So, 
it's pretty it, it's neat editorially to get some sort of left of center uh, view on um, you know on on the subject matter at hand. So wow. So anyway, I hope that answers Dave Turner's questions. I think it did. Um, he also asked, "What were your favorite books of reprinted material from Marvel, DC, or independent publishers that came out in the last year?" Say besides Dazzler, just to make just to make heads people head people's heads explode, I would say Dazzler. <laughs> uh, but you beat me to my punchline. Okay, um, <laughs> no, okay. I would say probably, um, you know, the masterworks just keeps surprising me, and I just love the fact that we have cracked the lid on the prime material of my comic book reading youth with John Burns FF, Frank Miller's Daredevil. Um, and, uh, and we, we've been sort of in the saddle with uncanny X-Men for a while, but also Avengers. And so to me, I guess the, the evolution of masterworks is really hitting my sweet spot of the comics that I read when I was a kid, you know? Um, I had read a lot of the older stuff by collecting old back issues and all, but I'm talking about comics that I bought brand new off the spinner rack and read them cover to cover over and over. And they are now reaching the point of where every month I'm getting those on my shelf. So I guess that development writ large is what I'm was really thrilled about in the last year. So with with a lot of I mean, obviously you have all the Marvel, the masterworks, but how many of them do you find you still go back to, if at all, the original singles if you have them still, um, especially during that kind of that sweet spot as you said that kind of when you first got into comics because of obviously like it's nice to have everything looking beautiful and remastered everything in the masterworks, but there's also something about having that initial experience on the newsprint. The faded, you know, the faded kind of look, because right. obviously the ink, you know, hits the, the the paper in a different way. Like, how often do you kind of go back to some of those that those old memories and actually re-experience as you did at, at that point in the actual singles? And you still have them. It, I, I do have a lot of my singles, um, and it may surprise you, someone who um, you know runs a Masterworks website, but I actually don't have that much nostalgia about the, those old comic books. I really don't. Um, they, I, I know that I'll always have at least a short box or two of my favorites, mm-hmm. you know, and not just because of condition, but, you know, some of my favorites are beater copies that you'd have to, you know, shoot me in the head before you could have it. Um, <laughs> but I don't... I, I I don't need all those old comics. I would I, I, I really do would rather read them in omnibus and masterworks and epic collections and all that. Um, and so I don't really go back a lot to experience the sights and the smells of uh, <laughs> of those books. Frankly, to me, and I know you know I know this isn't a universal opinion, but to me, reading them in masterworks is the superior way to read this material just is that's mm-hmm. how i feel and i know that other people feel differently for a, a variety of very valid and personal reasons but um you know people like the smell of the old comics they like the newsprint they like all that stuff and i do too but not enough to like want to keep them around forever and in the way you know yeah um one interesting 
one interesting side topic with that is I've worked with um, Tashin um, on a couple books. I worked on the Stan Lee story, and I worked on the Marvel 75th anniversary book. And you know, they shoot um, on film um, a lot of those old comics. I'm actually, I've actually helped on some of those um, sessions with them, where I've gone with them to help arrange the shoots with private collectors and, and keep keep that going um, to where you know priceless comic books are being opened and, and uh, shot on film. And so when I open those books, I get to see the newsprint and I get to see the way the comics were originally presented. And that satisfies me in a big way to see it like that in a, in a really nice deluxe edition, like a Tashin book. Mm-hmm. So I get my fix that way. Okay. That's a good answer. Um, another question from Dave Tone. What, what upcoming books, even though we might have a long wait, are you most looking forward to? What upcoming books are we most looking forward to? Well, the Eternals book. Um, again, I really was looking forward to that 1985 series when I was a kid because I was an Eternals fan. And there was like very few of us <laughs> back then. <laughs> Um, and so I'm looking forward to having that book and having that Kirby material reevaluated. Um, you know, the omnibus from 2005 was, was great, but we now have, uh, 15 years of advancements in, in the way we do this stuff. And not only that, but we have a lot of the original art that we didn't have access to and Marvel's art library is now accessible. And so art and film, we can pull stuff and, and really um, give it its uh, due. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to the Kirby stuff because uh, if you if I had to name my top three comic book series, one of them would be Eternals by Jack Kirby. I just love it that much. It's that, that significant to me. So Eternals. Um, the Conan omnibuses, as they, every, every new one that comes out, I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Um, there's a book coming out. I think it's been spoiled by Hatchet listings, but it's called um, "It's a Love and War" by Jack Kirby Omnibus. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it has it has all of Jack's uh, Atlas and and early Silver Age war comics and romance comics all in one book. <laughs> so <laughs> so you can have bullets flying in the air. And you can have, you know, uh, arrows flying all in one book. And um, and I'm, I, that book is just, you know, on the one hand, it's just crazy to imagine that book existing. But on the other hand, it's totally logical, you know, because um, Jack Kirby created comics from the heart. You know, and I don't mean that as a pun, even though it works as a great pun. <laughs> but, you know, Jack Jack uh, Jack's romance comics were uh, groundbreaking. With Joe Simon, they they invented the genre, and so you get to see Jack's uh, pr- you know prime uh, romance material from Marvel. Uh, yeah, and he put a lot into those comics. You know, he, it was a you know it was a you know he had a famous love affair with his wife Roz. You know that was a that was a love that stood the test of time, and um, and I can't imagine that that his feelings for her didn't wind up in some of those stories in, in interesting ways, you know? Um, and then war, I mean, you know, he served, he, he fought in, 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 uh, Europe and, and world war two. He fought, you know, in and around the battle of the bulge. Right. 
and he uh, he put a lot of those stories into action when he was telling his war stories. Even in something like Sergeant Fury, which wasn't, you know, it wasn't wholly the kind of, you know, Atlas era or EC style, you know, hard-bitten, you know, war comic. Um, you know, it was sort of the Marvel Age version of a war comic. You know, Stanley, lots of Stanley hijinks in there. <laughs> and um, But at the same time, there were some serious undercurrents to Sergeant Fury, and a lot of that was came from Jack's, you know, serious understanding of what it's like to, you know, um, aim, aim a gun at someone and, and, and take and you know knowing you're going to possibly take their life you know and living that way for like a year year and a half he, he was serving over there like that um, yeah so I, I'm just looking forward to that book it's just it's it's not just it's not going to be a novelty book it's going to be a really substantive uh, book to read I think so for sure no I, I mean it's it's the, that type of stuff that again reprinting stuff that you wouldn't think of is always what makes me most excited when I look at what upcoming collections there are like what what else are we getting that we're never going to get anywhere else or the, right. as you said kind of scratches that itch or just kind of shows stuff that again where else are you going to find it like I love uncollected stuff there's just nothing I don't know why but there's yeah. just something very exciting and enthralling about yeah. there's something in here that's we've never you know that they've never reprinted anywhere else so they never thought it was worthwhile before and now we're finally getting it yeah and just to see that material back in print I mean it's you know uh, Eternals from 1985 is, is for me a fun thing to think about but you know Jack Kirby's prime 50s art that's never seen print um, most of it I just can't wait. That's like serious business, you know? So really looking forward to that. Now, I'm guessing because of the, the vintage, that would be a Corey book, correct? Corey is working on that, yes. Do you get to take a, do you get any yep. like advanced sneaks from him that you get to kind of look at and just drool over? Ha. Well, uh, I, you know, yeah, I do get little sneak previews and stuff. And of course, we'll be doing a preview page for it once, um, you know, once there's something to share. And so, you know, people will, you know, I get those things up as soon as I can, trust me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, Corey, uh, Corey gives me a chance to see, I, I got, I got, he sent me a PDF of the, of the book. Um, but you know, the real preliminary, like most of it's just the black and white scans and stuff. Um, the preliminary stuff before the real restoration happens. So I got to sort of scroll through it and sort of acquaint myself with the stories that are there. And so yeah, uh, be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are. Don't worry. Um, all right. So a few quick, uh, quicker questions, and then we'll we'll move on. Uh, well, and not move on. We'll let you go back to your day. Uh, yeah. From comics ate my brain. Uh, we have uh, what Marvel Age material that has not yet appeared in Masterworks format do you think would benefit most from being presented in spectacular quarterly vision? Ah, Marvel Age. To me, that means 1961 to 1970. Um, and there's not much left um, from that era. I mean, there's the latter half of Sergeant Fury. Mm-hmm. There is... Um, a lot of the Western comics, uh, there is that, you know, Tower of Shadows, Chamber of Darkness uh, horror stuff, which is just such an omission and, and, and having been collected. You have some of the top all-star creators of the day 
Um, you know, we've seen a few stories, like like Jack Kirby did a, did a couple stories um, that wound up in, in his uh, monster monsterbus uh, omnibus, and some other stories have, have come out. I know that the, the Conan the Barbarian, Star of the Slayer, uh, is it Star of the Slayer? Um, not Star of the Slayer. What was his name? The Proto Conan um, showed up in the first um, Conan omnibus because that was Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith doing Conan six to eight months before they did Conan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, but that those two series need to be collected in, in full. Um, and I would love to see them in Masterworks. I'm trying to think, what else? Well, come on, Patsy Walker. Why not? Mm-hmm. Patsy mm-hmm. and Millie, you know. Um, I'd love to see the Patsy stuff when they had that big change in direction to make her comics very Marvel Age. You know, I mean, there was the pre-Marvel Age stuff, which was just the typical... You know, teen hijinks, uh, Archie style stories, but then, then uh, Stan and and, and um, Stan, and, who was the artist at the time? I think it was um, uh, Al Hartley. I think not Al Hartley. Was it Al Hartley drawing um, at that time? Um, but they did a real Marvel Age take. So you add the melodrama, you add uh, recurring storylines, continuing characters. You know, and, and um, that's the kind of stuff that seems like it would make a really cool masterworks. Um, and hopefully we'll see that one mm-hmm. day. Um, you know, if we've seen Dazzler, why don't, why don't, why don't we see Patsy, Patsy <laughs> Walker? Um, but yeah, so I, I hope that answers comics ate my brain's question. All right. Uh, his next question was, uh, which of Marvel's 1970s black and white magazine do you think most deserves a Marvel Masterworks or Marvel Omnibus and why? And for the purposes of the question, ignore any, any impediments regarding copyrights and licensed material. Uh, oh. Most deserves an Omnibus treatment? Or Masterworks, like uh, either, either or. Or Masterworks, yeah. Well, they've pretty much been sticking with omnibus for the magazine stuff yeah and um you know you you see some black and white stuff appear in um masterworks but it's usually um tacked on out of necessity because of ongoing storylines or whatever um but when it comes time to do deadly hands of kung fu or tomb of dracula they just put it all in omnibus um uh well we've got conan um how about Cull? Mm. Why don't we see Cull? Because it would be a great compliment to Conan. Uh, so let's get the Roy Robert E. Howard estate on the phone and talk <laughs> to them about doing a Cull omnibus. And we can get Roy Thomas to write an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go. That's what we should do. Um, the other one I was thinking would be, wouldn't it be great for an omnibus of Rampaging Hulk. Wouldn't mm. that be awesome? Yeah. So those are my two answers. Rampaging Hulk and Call. Okay. His uh, next question was, uh, are you well stocked with Cheez-Its during this time of crisis? Yes. But as I mentioned in, in, a, in, a, in a post on the message board, uh, my sister was responsible for getting the Cheez-Its. And let's just say that she didn't do it the way I would have done it. Because... <laughs> I'm not going to listen. We're in a we're in a global pandemic. We're in 
we're in an apocalypse right now, and so I am not going to create issues where there ought not be one. I will eat the original regular cheeses that she got, but I would have preferred that she got the reduced fat cheeses mm. because because not only are they reduced fat, which means you can eat twice as many <laughs> as you normally would, but right? Am I right? Yes. And so, but they're actually tastier because they're crispier. Mm. They're crispier and they're they're less greasy tasting. And I do, you know, I don't mind the greasy taste of regular cheeses, but reduced fat is nice, crispy, non-greasy, and it's great. It's the only thing I could. It's one of the few things where it's the fat-free version that's actually tastes better to me. Mm. Yeah, there aren't, a, there a, aren't many. She of those. got three big boxes of the of the original. So. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, my heart sank just a little when I saw it, but I was like, look, you know, all hell's breaking loose, you know, go find something, something serious to be upset about. So, and I did, I found, I found several things that were serious to be upset about, let me, let me tell you. I can't imagine. <laughs> we're not going to get into that. No. So. Uh, next up, we have uh, John Romita Sr. or John Buscema? Pick one? Yeah. Oh my God, that's cruel, that is cruelty. <laughs> <laughs> Cruelty. Cruel. Uh, they, they have these uh, memes on Facebook where it's like, make me pick between two groups, and then they're like, mm-hmm. you know, pick between Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones. And I'm like, uh, why must I? Of course, that's easy. I will pick Led Zeppelin, but still, you know, <laughs> I love the Stones. I would go with, oh, God. Uh, I would go with I would have to go with John Basima, and here's why: um, because of just the, the quantity. Basima's, mm. you know, Basima, you know, at a certain point in John Romita's career, he he sort of switched into art director mode, and you know, he, he drew less and less and less. He'd do the covers here and there, and he'd certainly do he'd do alterations on covers. You know, you could see. You could see a Jack Kirby or a Gil Kane cover, but unmistakably, you could see where John Romita got involved somewhere along where along the way. You know, um, but you know, John Romita ruled the '60s. Um, but then, but you know, by the early '70s, like Stan Lee, had sort of shifted into a more, you know, um, you know, supervisory uh, role. Mm-hmm. Um, and John Basima, you know, John Basima, even when John was phoning stuff in. It was great, you know. It's like, boy, if you want anybody to phone something in, it would be a superior draftsman like John Basima because he makes everything look great. And he, you know, he was such a big crab. He was so grouchy about his work and, and you know, I didn't like this and I didn't like that. But just look at his work; it's just so great, you know. Uh, you know, just he might be the ultimate superhero comic book artist. Hmm. Um, really, and actually, that's that's minimizing his talents because look at what he did with Conan. You know, Conan wasn't a superhero. Um, Conan was a fantasy hero. He was a you know a, a man of, of 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 muscle and grit and uh, you know and ferocity, uh, but he didn't wear a cape. You know, um, and he didn't have fantastic powers. He was just you know he was going to come out on top no matter what, and. Um, so John Basima excelled with that. Talk about a, talk about how great John Basima is. 
he could take Barry Windsor Smith, who did the iconic version, the original iconic version of of Conan, and who, when he left, everybody was like, "Well, there's just this comic is over." Barry Windsor Smith at the top of his game can't replace him, and then here comes John Buscema, and does a similarly iconographic Conan, and so you have. In the 1970s, you look at you look at Conan, and you can easily think of two separate and super distinctive versions of the same character carrying equal weight and iconography. Uh, to me, is just one of the great kind of kind of cool things to think about when you look at Conan. And John Buscema was half of that equation, hmm. and so very different from what from that you know from from Barry Windsor Smith, you know when. Um, when he left Conan in the mid seventies, um, turned right around and topped them. You know, just a great achieve comics history. So I'm going to go with John Buscema. Okay, you ready for the next one? Much- sure. We got uh, Claremont and Burn on Uncanny X Men, or Burn and Burn on himself on FF. Um, Claremont Burn X Men. That's right. easy. Okay, that's easier than I thought it. I love both. I love both, but well, the, ne- the next one might be harder then. Okay, we got uh, so it's it's a multiple choice. We got Cockrum X Men, Burn X Men, Paul Smith X Men, Hermita Junior X Men, or Sylvester X Men. Oh, okay. Uh, as great as Sylvester is, I'll rule him out because um, that's about when I got out of X Men was after his run or in the middle of his run. And um, and as as phenomenal as Zonar's as he was, it's not my X Men, so I can I can rule him out. Um, the same could be said for Ramita Junior. Um, Ramita Junior is one of my favorite artists, um, and his, but and his first run in X Men is great, but it's not his best X Men. He he would come to do X Men even better down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, <sighs> Now it gets hard. <laughs> Paul Smith. Paul Smith is the dark horse choice because you you can't you just can't say Paul Smith when you have Byrne and Cockrum in the running. But then look at those pages. Just look at them. Look mm-hmm. at those covers. It's exquisite. That is some of the best X Men art you will ever see. Is when Paul Smith drew the X Men in the in the eighties. And I, I just wish he never left. I just wish he stayed on that title. And I wish they gave her a brand new title to Ramita mm. Jr. I wish Ramita Jr. had been drawing X Factor or something, you know? Yeah. Um, if, 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 you know, yeah. I, I just, but you can't say no to John Byrne. You just can't. Byrne Austin, you just can't. You just can't. <laughs> Not only because of the draftsmanship and how great it looks, but just the storylines was just, there was just too much stuff there, you know? And, um, and that's why he edges out Cockrum, but Cockrum has a vitality and this anything goes explosion of, of inventiveness and creativity in Cockrum's X-Men that continued when he came back, you know, people, it's easy to forget, but Cockrum, came back after Burn and had a nice little run there um, where, you know, Kitty's fairy tale and, and uh, their first part of the Brood saga, that was Cockrum, you know, and mm-hmm. um, 
and he did the Nightcrawler stuff, and um, you know, you're just not going to, you know, certainly if you're looking for fun and excitement, you're going to go with Cockrum. But that just, you know, soap opera, space opera, serious, every panel matters. You got to go with Burn Austin and you know the Claremont Run as just uh, just some of the most compelling comics that I've ever read. So okay, that was hard to answer. Yeah, no, that was I, I liked the process though. I I, I thought you, you took us on a journey there. <laughs> All right, um, Roger Stern, Doctor Strange, or Roger Stern on Avengers. Um. I'm going to go with uh, Doctor Strange because um, it's just real sophisticated, and you know, it's um, he had some really great art collaborators. Not that he didn't on Avengers, but um, you know, the, I love the Basima Palmer stuff. Um, but uh, but I love um, Stern's uh, run on um, you know Doctor Strange because you had just a really nice diversity of artists that he worked with. Marshall Rogers, he had some really great Paul Smith, again, at the top of his game. Um, fit in there. There was a well, there was a Michael Golden issue, you know. So yeah, Doctor Strange. Very underrated. If, if people haven't read um, the 80s, mid-80s Doctor Strange, early 80s to mid-80s, go read it. All right. Um, Ramita Sr. on Spider-Man or Ramita Jr. on Spider-Man? Oh God! Come on! I think even John Jr. with dad, um, you know that's that's pretty easy. Even though John John Jr. is freaking incredible, um, but John Romita is is like the classic. He's the man. Mm-hmm. Steve Ditko is always going to be my favorite, but um, but uh, jo- uh, John John Senior again had no business. Uh, coming in after Ditko and and you know developing a completely different iconography out of that character, mm. but he did. Yeah, kind of like the same thing with Conan. You know, actually, that was what uh, I was thinking was of talking. when you were mentioning the Conan iconography yeah. with two major yeah. stalwarts, but having different versions, but just as important to the character. And I think the same thing of Ditko and uh, and Ramita. All right, next one we have uh, Sinkovich on New Mutants or his Electra. Woo! New Mutants. Uh, simply because when he did Electra, you expected it. Mm. But with New Mutants, it was so ridiculously unexpected and so over the top and so not what you expected to pick off the spinner rack every month, you know, in, a, in what had been a mainstream Marvel comic. So, New Mutants, um, the and just he he was on that title for a good a good while, and uh, delivered some really important stories and, and moments and covers. And uh, so I'm going to go New Mutants. And uh, but Electra was just that Electra series was was fantastic. <laughs> but by then, you know, by then the secret was out. You know, the, this you knew you knew to expect that from Bill Sienkiewicz. So. That's a good the answer. Audacity of that's, a, that's a good answer. Yeah. Um, Betty or Veronica? Oh, 
Veronica all day long. That's an easy. I love. Come on, Betty's great, but Veronica. Oh, Veronica. Uh, this... Veronica, Veronica, Veronica. I love her. Uh, next question: Is it the sword that is savage, or is it the barbarian who wields it? Wow, what a weird question! Is it is it the sword that is savage? I think it's the sword. It's got to be the sword. Yeah. In any other hands, it's it's not as effective. It's not as savage. Mm-hmm. But in Conan's hand, the sword just takes on its own life of savagery. Yeah. You know? So. And I thought it was great, too, because, you know, he, it's not like they ever, you know, stuck him with, a you know, the same sword. He, he was good with any sword. You know, get, put a sword <laughs> in his hand or... They should have a second series, the Savage Axe of Conan. You know, just let it pick up an axe, you know, because uh, it's it's the it's the thing at hand, you know. But you know, I think that was, you know, they they never tied him. They never made it. They never gave him a magic sword or anything like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he made the best out of whatever situation he was in because he was, you know, underneath that, you know, rustic barbarian exterior was a pretty, you know pretty uh uncanny thinker you know his brain was nimble he, he could he could think his way out of he didn't have the biggest vocabulary but he he definitely had a nimble brain his brain his intellect was tied to his reflexes mm-hmm. like no other person you know so this is uh the last question from uh from uh, comic say my brain it's a, it's a little bit of a longer one, but uh, let's go. It says, uh, suppose DC Comics comes to you and says, we want to hire somebody who will write the ship in our collected editions department. We want a steady hand on the wheel without unnecessary cancellations, dropped lines, misprints, or midline changes in trade dress, and somebody who will be dedicated and pour their heart into the job. What names would you give them? Oh, I thought you were going to say, do you want the job? <laughs> you, could, you could say that, too. <laughs> And I'd be like, how much do you pay? Um, you know, I think, you know, I, 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 uh, I certainly Corey, come on. Great. Corey, Corey, wonders, you know, Corey just take his operations to DC, you know. Um, I don't want to see that because I love him doing Marvel stuff. But Corey, uh, you know, Corey has nothing really left to prove, in my opinion, um, with, uh, with how he manages, um, what he does um so um but you know there's there's people that work with Corey that are just as good you know um people like mike kelleher is his secret weapon you know you see his name in the credits a lot in a lot of different books not just Corey's books but other books too and you know mike will always do the job you ask him to do so um if you know and when he has the budget and the permission and he will do he will, you know, make that material sing. And if you ever see material with Mike Keller's name on it that doesn't look great, it's because that's what that's what they paid him for. <laughs> they, they, you know, they gave him a they gave him a budget, and he worked within that budget. But it looks as it's going to look as good as it possibly can look. Uh, you can take that to the bank when you see his name in the credits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, b- books are like anything; they have budgets. You know, you you just can't. You just can't, uh, you know, put an unlimited budget on everything. If, if, and, and you know, if you could, we might never see any books because the, you know, nobody, the, 
could afford them. <laughs> and, and also, you know, people like Corey would probably never want to let them loose because there's always one more piece of original art you could you could get if you just waited another week or if you just paid the person who owns it what they're asking. You know, if you could just budget that money to acquire that scan that you need, you know, that piece of art that's so important. You know, but um, you know, at a certain you got to do stuff on a deadline, and in comics has always been about doing stuff on budget and on a deadline and, and you know that's never going away and that's even the same way with collected editions but you know you know that um, with people like Mike Keller that um, they're going to do um, the best they can with uh, you know with what they got so I would recommend I, if I had the talent and skill I would love to do a job like that but I don't you know I don't have maybe if I took a year out and, and went and trained and you know i i certainly have a knack i think i have a knack for it and i you know i did work on um, overhauling marvel's film library um so i i kind of know the i know that side of things i know that material and i i, I kind of know how it works functionally um but you know there's so much more to learn you can't just you know answer a job application and say sure i'll do it and then they're like okay here's the keys you know and then you don't know how to, you know, drive a stick shift. <laughs> so the car doesn't go anywhere. That's what would happen if they hired me. But, um, but yeah, that kind of a job is a dream job. Corey has a dream job for, for people like us, you know. And, but I know, I know some of the people at DC, and I'm not, you know, I know that, you know, they just have a different organization over there than Marvel does, for better and for worse in many ways. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm not up on all the recent criticisms of DC product. I haven't really been following as closely because I've got other things going on. But, you know, I'll tell you one thing. I know that those people love the material. I know that. I can say that for a fact because we've talked about it. I've, t I've talked, you know, I don't talk about it a lot, but I have talked with the DC people. Um, I've, been to, I've been to DC offices in New York and in Burbank. You know, and I know, I know those people. And, you know, I know they love... The material, and so uh, you know, there you go. All right. The the last question that came in kind of under the wire was from uh, Chip Totek, who asked, uh, "How much do you like each of the, those formats? Masterworks, oversized hardcovers, gallery edition, digital, epic collection, and omnibus. Which are your favorites and why?" Now, I feel like Masterworks is obviously going to be your favorite, but how do the others rank up? Well, I like them all. I would definitely put digital at the very bottom, but there's stuff about digital I like, you know, um, particularly from for work, you know, when I'm working on things and I need to read things for work, it's very convenient. Uh, but my preference will always be a book in my hand. Um, and I, I like Masterworks because of their size and weight. Um, I like Omnibus because of their uh, breadth of material. Um, and I don't mind the size and the weight of Omnibus, even the big honker books. <laughs> I, I still find a way to, uh, to enjoy reading them. So that's not a, that's not a factor for me. I just prefer, uh, Masterworks. Um, and I like Epic Collections too. I, you know, there's just a different, you know, you're holding a soft cover, a nice beefy soft cover in your hand, like, like Epic's. That's got a nice feeling to it too. There's, there's. Part of being a book lover is loving the experience of reading books, you know, mm. and um, sitting in a comfortable chair and knowing that you've got a couple hours 
to kill and uh, having a hot cup of tea or, or, you know, whatever sitting there with you and knowing that you're just going to be able to dig into a book you wanted to read, no matter what the book is, you know, um, whether it's a collected edition or a, you know, a, a novel or poetry or, or whatever. It's just very pleasing to have different sensations from different kinds of books, you know. So there's something to love about all of them. But I will definitely wave the flag forevermore for physical books printed on paper with covers and dust jackets and that you file away on a shelf. <laughs> that will be something I love forever. So, Do you, do you buy any of the, like, yeah. any of the uh, epic lines knowing that obviously that you get the masterworks of everything? I don't double up on epics unless... unless they're cool books like the first Silver Surfer or the first Hulk, mm. which collected a lot of material from out from outside the regular run of the comics, and then I'll double dip. But generally speaking, if I have material in a Masterworks or an Omnibus, I will not buy the Epic, or I will sell off the Epic. Um, on the rare occasion, though, there's stuff that's in the Epic that's not in the other books, and then I'll weigh my choice carefully but um but yeah i i, I generally don't buy <coughs> trade paperback collections if i have the material in hardcover hmm. so hardcover in some format would always kind of take precedence yes absolutely all right well i think that's a good place to leave it so thank you so much for we've we've gone over two hours now so uh i think beforehand we said you know hour hour and a half let's see and of course we blew right past that but i appreciate your patience and uh that's right and uh it's always it's always nice to have you on and uh, i just love hearing you talk i mean you actually one thing i meant to ask is that how have we never gotten uh like a, a regular podcast from you know the Marvel Masterworks forum that you've run. Like I guess you don't have the time, but I mean you have such a great speaking voice and you're very passionate about about the product. I'm just surprised it never <laughs> kind of nat- naturally came out. Yeah, well, um, I do have a voice for radio and a face for radio. <laughs> so you know, uh, you would think I would be a natural for podcasting. No, but um, I, I've thought about it, and um, you know. Um, it has appealed to me. I think I get my fix, though, appearing with you on a semi-regular basis. You know. um, but you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll do a podcast. We'll see. Um, if I did a podcast, could I get you on as a guest? Could I have you on as a guest? I mean, I'd be the easiest get ever. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> cool. Well, um, you know, and I, I did do it. Um, I did do an unboxing video for the Stan Lee story, um, and that's on YouTube. And if you type. Stan Lee story or whatever. I think it's the top, the top hit, and I enjoyed doing that. I thought I did a pretty good job at it, so I might do some more of that type of stuff. Okay. I don't think I could possibly do a regular, ongoing, like every week type thing. You know, some people can do that, and that's wonderful. But I, I just can't. I don't think. Um, but we'll see. But we'll see. What about um? um hey, there was one thing that you. 
What's that? Go on. Oh, I was just to say, have you ever thought of uh, like a, almost uh, could you ever do a, a companion to any of the Marvel monographs where you actually had like a half an hour sit down with the artist talking about the selection process or what went into it, especially the ones where like Bacallo, as you said, like who really went through the process and really you know made it his book um, in terms of you know the development. Was that has that ever been a thought of yeah, maybe trying yeah, to do I've that? Yeah, I thought about that. I have thought about that. Um, I just uh, you know. I would love to do that. I, I think maybe the best, yeah, the best way to do that though would be a video format because you know mm. when you're talking with artists about their art, you kind of want to see the art, you know. True. And um, I think that's kind of important. And um, so I would want to figure out how to maybe do that um, in a video way. So if anybody listening to this has ideas, or if you have an idea of how, you know, you know, I would be able to do that like i know it's probably easier than i think to get you know two heads on a screen talking to each other but then also intersperse um art art into the mix you know to show off pieces of art and stuff like that mm-hmm. i would love to do something like that that would be cool yeah be awesome. so uh yeah um real quick there was the uh i was going to mention the super secret surprise announcement or whatever all right Remember? Yes, you did. Well, I should say before you say anything, we're, we're this episode's probably going to go up on, on April fourteenth. So, is it okay for that super secret to yes. come out on April fourteenth? Yes, it's fine. Okay, um, and I'll just—I am involved in um, right now. I am producing with my partner um, Michael Dunaway and uh, Catherine Waddell, partners plural, um, and some other associates that we have. Um, we are producing a feature film documentary on Roy Thomas. Oh, wow. So that's news I am breaking here. And uh, we're far enough along on it um, where, uh, you know, we can start talking about its existence. Roy is engaged uh, with us, and Roy is, you know, Roy's like, I don't know why you'd want to do a movie about me, but sure, let's do it. <laughs> so uh, so uh, we think we have a very interesting story to tell about Roy and about not only Roy's life um, and career in comics, but also what he kind of represents in the world of pop culture. You know, um, uh, There's sort of some compelling um, um, threads to his story that sort of uh, I, think, I think people outside of comics would be interested in um, – you know, sort of having unveiled for them. And so anyway, um, that's sort of, um, we're, we're actively working on that. Um, we're going to be having a big, um, like all independent product projects like this, we'll be having a fundraiser fundraising thing coming up. Um, we had planned to have it out already, but the coronavirus, um, global pandemic, of course, has changed the arc of that plan mm-hmm. as well as, and of 8 billion other people's on the planet. But we're still working on it, and um, I think that um, people are going to be hopefully excited and enthusiastic to see how the project develops and uh, uh, hopefully um, kick in a buck or two here to, to make it come true. Yeah. Um, and so how about, how about the next time we talk, um, I can give you more details 
on that. That'd be amazing. You know, it's funny when you mentioned earlier that you were having, um, you know, Roy do, you know, intros to books, et cetera. I, I was thinking in the back of my head that you must just have him on speed dial now because you've worked in so many projects <laughs> together and now you're also doing yes. the film on his life. So that's, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so. Well, Roy and I are, you know, I think you could say Roy and I are friends. Um, you know, I, I can pick up the phone and call him and we can yak and stuff. I've been checking in on him, you know, with the coronavirus and all, and he's doing great, um, with, you know, his wife, Dan, they're doing fine. Um, they're out of harm's way and, uh, their needs are taken care of. And, um, but, uh, you know, but, you know, I, I don't like, you know, certainly have my distance from him. Um, we're not like, you know, super famous, you know, buddies talking all the time because, <laughs> you know, we want to do a serious, um, introspective look on him and, you know, um, so there is that distance when we do the film, but yeah, it's, it certainly is a, as a, it started as a working relationship and, you know, there's some real fondness between the two of us. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. I, I, I appreciate what he wrote about me in the, uh, in the, the Stan Lee story. Um, he said, uh, you know, he said, you know, that I contributed greatly to the book and that, uh, and that we're not related, but it wouldn't bother him if we were. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, because you know, we have the same last name. He's yeah. Like, no relation, but it wouldn't bother me if, if, if there were, you know. Um, so uh, that, you know, again, to the little kid in the, in the late 70s and the early 80s reading Invaders and All-Star Squadron and Conan, that was like to, to flash forward and just have that being said about you is one of the reasons why this job is so wonderful for me so wow that's amazing well yeah i would love to have you come back on in the future and we can talk more about that project as it progresses because that sounds really exciting yes it is it's very exciting so all right well uh thank you for uh having me and it's been fun absolutely thanks again for giving us so much of your time as i said it's been over two hours now so i'm greatly appreciative and it's always nice to have you come on this has been number seven so uh hopefully number eight is not too far away that's right all right. All right, man. Thanks so much. Take care and good luck. Good luck with you and your family as we continue to ride out the storm on this uh, on this virus. You, you too, especially to your family. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Comic shenanigans. Comic shenanigans with Adam Chapman. With Adam Chapman. Comic shenanigans. Comic shenanigans. With Adam Chapman, with Adam Chapman.